The rest of you should be turning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9 as we continue our our study in this uh, very interesting gospel. I'm enjoying it. I pray that you are. So Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62 is where we will be studying today. So, way back in, I think, 1983, uh, Leadership and and Ministry magazine had a... uh, a little cartoon. I think I put it up on the, the screen. I don't know if you can read that, but this was the billboard in front of a church. It's called the Light Church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship service. We only have eight commandments, your choice, and everything you've wanted in a church and less. Um, another one along the same lines. Come to church light. Half of God's attributes, a quarter of his commandments, Come as you are, have all you want, and live as you please. But my personal favorite is the donut church. Light, fluffy, and sugar-coated. <laughs> so, you know, we, we laugh at these things, and uh, usually uh, humor, one of the, the components of humor is that there is some basis in reality, or at least in satire. And so um, we see this, and, and we laugh, but we... We also think, oh my, what have we, what have we become? And as I was thinking about our, our message this week, and I was thinking about who we are as individuals, who we are in the image of Christ, and who we are as creatures, um, one of the things I, I became cognizant or reminded myself of is that we are beings that have become skilled at adaptive environment, adapting our environment to fit us. So we are, we're kind of unique in that way, in that we adapt the environment to fit us, rather than we adapting to our environment, such as, I don't know, you, you look at various creatures, and they, well, a great example would be a bear hibernates in the winter, right? So he's adapting to his environment. We don't do that. When it gets cold, we build furnaces, we build fires. We don't adapt to an environment. We, we, we create an environment to fit our needs. When it's hot, we, we build air conditioning units and, and we put on fans, those types of things. And so we are beings then that have become skilled at adapti- adapting the environment to fit us. And so I think that's fine in just our regular everyday life, but I wonder if the same thing occurs when we come to the the responsibilities and the challenges that God has given us when uh, to serve Him. In other words, God has given us various responsibilities, and we are to adapt our lives to them, but I think far too often what we do is we seek to adapt God's responsibilities and privileges to fit our lives. And so we become much happier with 24 fewer commitments and 7.5% tithe and a quarter of God's attributes and we only have eight commandments and you get to pick which one. We like those because the challenges that God often puts forth to us 
are, in fact, challenging. They are difficult. And rather than rising to them and meeting them and adapting our lives to them, it is much easier for us to fit God's commandments or adapt God's commandments to fit our desires and to make sure that we are, and to fit our comfort. And so we end up with something like God's word, but rather it's conformed to our convenience. Does that make sense? It must not have, because I didn't hear a whole lot of it. So I'll just move along. Normally what I do, if something doesn't make sense, I just spend more time talking about it. So uh, one good way to get me through the sermon is to say amen. Then I know we've got it and I can move along. But, uh, you know, but you know that doesn't short. You know that doesn't shorten the sermon one bit, does it? So no 15-minute sermons here. My introduction's 15 minutes. So um, just to let you know. So um, today we, we come to a very, very challenging text. And it is challenging because um, it's easy to miss or it's easy to diminish the high standard that Christ is going to call us to and make it less than what it is. But on the other side, it's also really easy to uh, take our text and make it some sort of legalistic command that we must follow rigidly. And I don't think either of those two extremes are what Christ is calling us and, and telling us to do. So I'm going to walk a very fine line today between... Um, lowering the demands that Christ has called us to, and yet at the same time, I don't want to drift over into some sort of legalistic exercise saying, if you are really a Christian, you will do X, Y, and Z. So I'm saying right at the forefront of this that I'm going to walk a very narrow line. There may be from time to time. I may trip over to one side or the other, but have mercy on me. Um, so before we get going, let me give you the big picture. What we're doing in the book of Luke, we really need to understand the entirety of the gospel of Luke. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to place this, these few verses into the larger setting of what we've studied in the book of Luke so far. And to do that, I need to go back to chapter 1, verse 3. I know it's like, oh my goodness, we're going to study all of Luke all over again. Not really, but we need to get a big picture of where this particular passage of text sits within the gospel of Luke for us to fully grasp what I, I think Luke is doing, because what Luke is, has done at the beginning of his gospel, first of all, the gospel is written to a guy by the name of Theophilus, and it's written so that Theophilus might be certain about the things that he's been taught, that he can have certainty or assurance about the things that he's been taught about Jesus Christ. And so Luke's gospel is so that we can be certain about the things that we've been taught about Jesus Christ. And then Luke goes in and begins to describe Christ, and he describes Christ in very exalted terms. He, he, he lifts Christ extremely high from the very beginning, from, from the, the infancy or the birth narratives. We, we see this exalted nature of who Christ is because, Christ, first of all, we see the miraculous nature of the birth of Christ and, of course, the forerunner, Jesus, uh, forerunner John the Baptist. And we see that all of this was, came about through angelic, um, messengers. I mean, how often does that happen? First of all, two births that are miraculous in nature, announced by angels and calling, you know, the, the heavens opening and the glory and the, the glorious heavenly choirs singing about the birth of this individual, Jesus Christ. So it begins right at the, at the very start with this exalted um, 
explanation of who Jesus is. And then it moves on and Luke describes the... um, uh, the nature and the wisdom, the, the, the profound wisdom that Jesus had, even as a 12-year-old, confounding teachers of the law in, in the temple, even when he was just a, a young boy, not even a teenager, hadn't even gone through his bar mitzvah probably at that time. And then we see him um, being baptized and in his baptism, and when he comes out of the water, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And, and I'm sure all of our baptisms were great, but they weren't that great. All right? That didn't happen at my baptism. It was really good. It was, a, it was a blessing. But that didn't happen. I didn't see some Holy Spirit come down in the form of a dove, and there was no voice from heaven, but in Jesus Christ. That's what happened. And then he went into the wilderness where he was tempted by Satan, and he overcame the temptation of Satan, defeated Satan, unlike Adam, who was in, the, who was in a garden um, and succumbed to the lies of the enemy, Jesus, the, the, the second, the final Adam, goes into the wilderness and, and defeats the tempter on his own turf and exercises or, or displays authority over the great deceiver. And then he goes into Nazareth and begins to preach. And he says, the spirit of the Lord, the spirit of God is upon me to preach The good news, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then He sat down and He said, Today the Scripture has been fulfilled in your midst. And then Jesus goes about preaching and healing and casting out demons and raising the dead and calming the seas and exercising authority over all of creation. Creation above the earth, under the earth, on the earth. Jesus has authority over all. And so all of these things, Luke is painting an exalted picture of who Jesus Christ is, all to get us to the place of answering the single most important question any of us will ever be asked, and that is, who do you say that I am? Alright? And the disciples, Peter speaking for the disciples, gives the right answer. You're the Christ of God. And I pray that as you've read the book of Luke and gone through the book of Luke, or you read, if you haven't read the book of Luke, and you come to this place where Jesus says, now who am I? You will answer correctly, and you will also affirm with Peter, the disciples, and I pray people in this church, that he is the Christ of God. But then Jesus kind of turns the tables on everything, and he says, okay, well, you're right, Peter. I am the Christ of God. Now, I want to tell you something about the Christ of God because you, I think you've got the wrong impression. You think the Christ of God has come to destroy and overthrow your wicked oppressors and, your, uh, and to reestablish some great new civil government that is uh, a theocracy like in the glory days of Israel, but that's not the case. The, the Messiah of God, the Christ of God, has not come to do that, but rather has come to suffer and to die. And this was a shock to him, because even in, in Matthew, it was such a shock, Peter said, no, that can't be. Far be it from you. That's how shocking this was. No, you're the Messiah. The Messiah is victorious. The Messiah sits on a throne. The Messiah rules. And Jesus is saying, no, the Messiah dies. And Peter's going, that just doesn't make any sense. That can't be. So we have this exalted picture of Christ. And I think it's important that Luke has given us this picture because what comes next in the Gospel of Luke and where we have been studying is this call now to follow. We have to ask Who are we following? 
And we need this high view of Christ in order to follow because the call to follow is a challenging call. And if you have a low view of Christ, the challenges and the rigors that Christ has set before our path are going to be impossible. You must have a high view of Christ. And so I think this is Luke's Luke's thing. He's, He's exalting Christ because he knows that when he comes to what it means to be a follower of this one, is going to require that our our understanding of Christ needs to be much greater, much grander. And so the flow is that is that there is a reason for this exalted view of Christ because the call to follow is a difficult one. So we need a high view of Jesus because it is a high view of Jesus that will compel us to stay on the path even when the challenges seem overwhelming and the challenges of following Christ in this broken and fallen world are myriad. We have multiple uh, ways that we can uh, be tossed and tossed about and swayed from the course. So if we have a low view of Christ, we will be easily knocked off our path. But a high view of, of Christ will keep us. So when you desire to be married and you yearn with everything you have and God has not blessed you in that area, you need a high view of Christ to remain faithful to Him and to love Him and to keep Him the main thing. And when your heart is broken by somebody and ripped out of your chest by somebody you care for, somebody you love, you must have a high view of Christ to remain on the path of discipleship. When anger overwhelms you or grief is so deep that there seems to be no bottom, you must have a high view of Christ to continue following where He is leading you. When you desire with all of your being to to have a child and the years go by, years go by, month after month, and no children, and you finally need to resign yourself to the fact that you will never have that which you desire, you must have a high view of Christ. Or you will veer off. You will seek something else. And when the doctor gives you that negative report that you feared with all, or your child, a report for your child, if you have a small view of Christ, you will swerve from your course. But it's not just all negative. Sometimes when positive things happen in our lives, if we have a small view of Christ, that, that, that business that finally takes off, the one we've worked so hard for, and finally takes off and we're having some success, if you have a medium or low view of Christ, you will easily be swerved off your course. You must have an exalted view of Jesus Christ. And when you become comfortable in your retirement, if Christ is not preeminent, you will sway. And so, Luke has exalted Christ because he knows that the path of discipleship has many challenges and is rigorous. And so, I'll just, here's the preview of where I hope to go today. Is that we are to follow Jesus. We will be presented today by Luke with three scenarios, and each of these Each of these scenarios will present a challenge to what we value. 
and of what is important. And in fact, the challenges today are going to pick up the theme that we saw in verse 23 through 25, where Jesus says, if you are to be my disciple, you must lay down your life, take up your cross and follow after me. And then he goes on and says, I'm the most valuable thing in the world, because what will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his very soul? That I am more valuable than anything else you can ever possess. And today, Jesus is going to challenge even the most valuable things that you and I can ever dream of. That's where we're going to go. And so if you will, join me as I, or follow along with me as I read our text today. Luke chapter 9, beginning with verse 57. God's holy word. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And this is God's most holy, inerrant word. So we begin then with this first challenge, and I've put this under the, the, the heading that discipleship is demanding. Discipleship is demanding because this guy comes along and, and he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And I, I think that this guy is really serious. It, the way that this is, is put forth is this isn't some emotional response to a, um, to a compelling message. I think he really desires to follow Jesus wherever he goes for the long haul. This is not some short-term emotional response. You know, somebody, some preacher gave a great impassioned plea and the music got boosted up and everybody is feeling a certain way and they walk down the aisle. This is not that. This is, no, Lord, I'm in it for the long haul. And I will go wherever you go. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I'll just tell you the way that this church would react to somebody like that. Right? We'd go do our happy dance. Somebody comes in and says, man, I am willing, I want to serve Christ, and I'm willing, I don't know, I, I, I've heard the message, and I am willing to go wherever Christ goes. I'm willing to follow wherever he will lead. I am telling you right now that pretty much everybody in this church is going to get on board and say, Yahoo! Jesus has a strange way of dealing with these things, though. It's almost as though Jesus is seeking to chase people off. I know he's not, but I think he's just, he's just being truthful. But look at his response. The statement, I will follow you wherever you go. And here's a paraphrase of the response. Do you know where I'm going? We're going to implore you to be followers of Christ. But let me be straight up. Do you know where he's going? I think that's a pretty good question. I'll follow you, Jesus. And that's a good question. Then ask, like, well, but can you tell me where you're going? I'll tell you where he's going. He's not going to the Four Seasons. He's not going to the Ritz-Carlton. He's going to Calvary. I'll follow where you, wherever you go. That's great. Do you know where I'm going? 
So then this, this response, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And this is a rather challenging passage of, or challenging answer for us to understand. What is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that if you sleep on a bed, you're not a follower of Jesus Christ? Or if you have a, fo- a home, you're, you certainly can't be a Christian or any of these things? I don't think that's where he's going. I think context helps. And all of you who are been in this church, we know that good biblical interpreters um, know that the three, the top three priorities in biblical interpretation are context, context. What's the third one? Context. And so um, let's look at the context. And the context is that they had just been um, sent out a group to go through Samaria and they'd sent out kind of a, an advance team to make preparations for Jesus, probably for food and sleep, and they got rejected. Jesus now has nowhere to lay his head. He would have been rejected by the Samaritans, had no lodging for the night. Even foxes and birds have places of shelter, but the Son of Man does not. He had been rejected and therefore has nowhere to lay his head. I don't think this is talking about whether or not we we have a soft bed to sleep on or whether or not we have a home to sleep in. Jesus, oftentimes, we we know he spent the night at people's house and he had lodging at times and probably slept in a bed or some, some form of shelter. That's not what's going on. Jesus had been rejected and the, the bottom line is this, is that the cost of discipleship is demanding. And the comforts that we are so desirous of may not accompany the path of Christ. So the discipleship then is a life of self-denial, not one of self-indulgence. And this goes back to chapter to, to verse 23. If you want to follow me, you must lay down your life. Uh, J.C. Riley wrote a, a very interesting quote about this verse, and I, and, and I thought I would, it's fairly lengthy, but let me read it. I think it's interesting. He said this, he said, he, that is Jesus, would have no man enlisted on false pretenses. He would have it distinctly understood that there is a battle to be fought and a race to be won, a work to be done and many hard things to be endured if we propose to follow him. Salvation he is ready to bestow without money and without price. Grace, by the way, and glory in the end shall be given to every sinner who comes to him. But he would not have us ignorant that we shall have deadly enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and that many will hate us, slander us, and persecute us if we become his disciples. He does not wish to discourage us, but he does wish us to know the truth. And so Jesus makes certain that if you're going to follow me, you need to understand right up front where I'm going and what I'm doing. This is so refreshing. There have been many movements within the church and, and, and recently how, how, how we grow churches and, and they put the church service on, the Sunday morning service, as, as a time that's, that's much more entertaining and it gathers people in, but we won't really give them a hard message. We'll move them into a small group and then we'll tell them about Jesus. That's deceptive and that's wrong. We will tell you right now about Jesus. I want you to follow Christ right now. I want you to know, but you better count the cost. There may come rejection. I'm not saying that to discourage you. I'm just telling you up front. All right? That's all. That's all. I want you to... 
There is no better life than being a follower of Christ. There is no better path to be on than the one to Calvary. There is no better course than being on the path that, that, that Christ walked. I'm telling you, you will be satisfied. You will be fulfilled. It will be the most joyous thing you will ever, ever do. I'm just telling you that there is a cost. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay your head. I want to follow you. Good. Do you know where he's going? So I guess in the end, this is, a, this is a call to count the cost. And that the disciple actually ends up placing a different valuation on temporal things. Like I said, trying to walk that fine line. I don't want to diminish what Christ is saying. I don't want to tip over into legalism. So our first one is that discipleship is demanding. And it is. Because it's inconvenient. We get a second response or a second encounter. This one's interesting because Jesus actually calls this man to another. He said, follow me. So Jesus now actually approaches this man or speaks to this individual and says, follow me. That reminds you of a lot like Levi, huh? Jesus saw Levi and said, follow me. What did Levi do? Left all of his stuff and followed after Jesus, not this guy. And by the way, these, these responses, I don't think these are evil people. In fact, I don't even think they have evil intent. I think they have right intent. They just, don't, they just misunderstand what it means to be a follower of Christ. We have no idea what, they, what their response was. I don't think they're trying to find an excuse. I just think they don't understand. And Jesus is telling them, if you want to be a follower of me, this is what it is. Just being up front. So Jesus now says, you follow me. And he makes what appears to me, and possibly, and certainly to many, a very reasonable request. And that is, Lord, let me first go bury my father. How much more reasonable can you get? That just makes sense. Let me go bury my father, and then, and, and, and then, I will, then I'll follow you. And after all, there was a, a, a social and even a religious responsibility for the eldest son to take care of his father and to make sure that um, the estate was taken care of. He had that responsibility. So it's not like this is some unreasonable, let me see if I can snake my way out of this thing and kind of be half in and half out. This seems like a very reasonable request. Let me go bury my father. In fact, it's so... Um, in fact. It's such a reasonable request that people have really struggled over Jesus' answer. And it is. It's a difficult answer. And so people have come up with at least three different, well, probably four different ideas on how um, to understand Jesus' response of let the dead bury their dead. And you go proclaim the kingdom of God. And so the first one is that his father had already died. And so this was going to be like a little 20-minute, you know, I'll just go and in a week I'll be back and you'll be 10 miles down the road and I'll just join you again. Um, perhaps that's what he was saying. Second response is that his father, and I don't think that one's very accurate, but that's just my opinion. The, the second understanding is that his father was near death and that he had a responsibility to take care of the, the family and then when everything, when his dad passed away, that he could manage the household finances and, and be a good son and do that. And then, the, then the third one is that his father's nowhere near being dead. He's just, the son just needs to go and, and take care of 
family responsibilities. And I've heard some state that what's going on here is that this idea of let me go bury my father was a was a Hebraic or a, um, a cultural way of basically saying, I'm going to stay home until my father has died and the family obligations are complete. So of those options, probably the, the final ones are, I think are better, but, but it doesn't really matter. I'm not going to get into which one is right and which one, one is wrong or which one has better support. The point of the matter is this. What the man is saying is not a trivial request. Jesus made a very high demand on this man. Very high. I think we need to keep that standard high. And the reason we need to keep that standard high is because the call of Christ is even higher. Scripture commands family loyalty. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 tells us, I think I have that, uh, yeah, there it is. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. This is not a trivial request. And, and what about that commandment number five, right? Honor your father and your mother. So, so this is a, a huge responsibility. It is a compelling duty that a man has towards his family. And Jesus is now saying, let the dead bury the dead. You go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Ultimately, folks, as a disciple, Christ is to have no rival. Not even the most important thing in our lives can rival Christ. And usually when I ask people about priorities, what are your priorities in life? They will tell me things like, well, it's Christ and then family and then church and then work or some sort of thing. But it's almost always Christ and then family. Almost always. Christ is saying it needs to stay in that order. That not even your family can rival me. I tolerate no rivals. If you are going to follow me, even the most important thing. And by the way, God created families. God has a high view of families. I think that's why we need to keep this family thing really high up there. Because God has a high view of families. In fact, perhaps maybe the highest calling a person has other than serving Christ is serving his family. And even here he's saying, I need to remain above your family. Commitment to Christ cannot be usurped by commitment to family. And that just shakes us at our core. Really? I know of some families who have said, well, we don't gather together for corporate public worship because we spend our time with our family. I don't know if that's what Jesus is talking about, but perhaps... But Jesus tolerates no rival, not even your family, not even my family. I don't think, and now we get into this idea, well, then you're going to ask me about a thousand what ifs. Well, what if we do this? Or what if I do that? Or what if? I think we serve Christ well when parents 
teach their children God's Word. I think that's part of following Christ. So dads, teach your children. I think the responsibility is on you too. Not that moms don't have any responsibility. But we read that fathers, teach your children God's Word. That's not the church's responsibility, by the way. It's your job as a family to teach your children. We can supplement that. We can help you. We joy in doing that. Your job, mom and dad, teach your children God's Word. Teach them. I think that's serving Christ. I think that's making sure that Christ is still above even family, that I am going to teach my children to love God. I'm going to teach them God's Word. I'm going to teach them how to live their lives in accordance with God's principles. So this is a a very high standard, but even there, Christ has no rival. And then we also see that discipleship not only tolerates no rival, but discipleship tolerates no delay. Let the dead bury the dead. Well, that's a kind of a strange statement because dead people can't bury dead people. I think the idea here is let the spiritually dead bury the dead. In other words, this is something anybody can do. You, however, as my disciple, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That's not something anybody, everybody can do. That's something that only a disciple can do. The gospel of the kingdom is an Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is an expectation of all disciples. Are you proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom? Do it. We need to do that. And there should be no delay. You might ask, what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel of the kingdom is the good news. It is the message of repentance, redemption, and restoration offered by God to all who will receive Christ. I want you to understand, folks, there is a God in heaven, and he made everything. Everything made you. Everything belongs to him, including you. You belong to him. You were made by him and for him. But here's the problem. We have sinned against the holy God. Every single one of us. We don't like to talk about it, but every single one of us have rebelled against the God who made us by, for him. And we have turned our back upon him. And as a result, we are separated from God. Your sins, the Bible says, has separated you from God. And as a result, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all means you and me, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and because it is true that the wages of sin is death, we are in a precarious situation. We are made by God for God, but we have rebelled against God and we are now separated from God. But let me tell you the good news. This is the proclamation. All of this is the proclamation of the kingdom that the king has come and his name is Jesus Christ and he bore the penalty of your sin. The wages of sin is death. That's eternal death. Jesus Christ on Calvary bore the penalty, bore the cost of those sins. All of God's wrath against your sin was poured out upon Jesus Christ. And so now I'm going to offer, make, a, make an offer to you. The Bible says to repent and believe the gospel. I've just told you the gospel. Now, I, I'm going to call you also to repent and believe in the gospel. You, let the be- dead bury the dead. Anybody can do that. Your job, now, get out there and proclaim the kingdom of God. That, I think that's part of what Jesus is saying there. The third scenario is another person who comes in and says, 
I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. Um, and this falls under the, the, the main topic of that. Disciples persevere. We've seen that um, discipleship um, has some de- is demanding and that discipleship trumps duty um, to, all, to everything other than Christ and that disciples persevere. You can see his qualified um, allegiance. I will follow you, but... This is another request to delay following Christ. And Jesus says this, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now that's a strange response, but it's actually a very helpful response because if we, if we look at the response, the response will help us understand how, what, what's going on in this statement. In other words, the man says, I, I want to go back and say, say goodbye to my family. That seems like a very reasonable request. But Jesus' response tells us a little bit about what's going on in this man's heart. This man isn't just simply saying, going, to say, going to say goodbye to his family, but rather Jesus is compelling this man. He is teaching this man that you need to turn from, from your commitment to the old relationships which are unprofitable and fix your eyes upon the kingdom. This is not a command to avoid your family. Again, we could be very legalistic and say, you know what, if you ever say goodbye to your family, you're not a real believer. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I think the answer helps us. But if you look back to old relationships, you're going to veer off course. A desire to hang on to the old life will cause you to, to veer off course. I'll tell you a story and I know um, some of you have heard the story a, a number of times, but I'll tell it again. So, one of the big concerns I had when I um, started as a pastor of this church was that I, um, I owned a, my wife and I owned a bike shop, and uh, I loved my job. It was a great job. It was frustrating at times, but I loved my job. Now I'm going to sell it and I'm going to start a renew my uh, come back to ministry. I'd left it for 17 years. And I ended up in the bike business and I loved it. And my concern, my fear was, Lord, I fear that I'll look back. I fear that I'm going to sell the store and then I'm going to look back and I'm going to say, I wish I hadn't done that. I'm always going to be desirous of that store. I'm going to see somebody riding a bike and I'm saying, I could have sold that bike. And I would have fit that bike better. I would have sold them a better. That bike doesn't fit that person at all. Who's this idiot? Ah, I should go fix this. I felt that I would, I really feared that I would be always looking back, wishing that that was still part of my life. And I was concerned. I'll just, uh, the great thing to that story is that um, I'm, the day we sold it, and there was a 30-day escrow, God miraculously, because there is no explanation for this, turned my heart from one day loving that job and the next day I hated it, literally hated it. I woke up and I said, oh, I don't want to go to work today. 
the last thing in the world I want to do is get out of bed and go to that stupid bike shop. And for 30 days, I dragged myself to that stupid bike shop. I hated it. I loathed going in. All I can say is praise God. Because I was concerned I'm going to look back to my old relationships, look back to my old loves, look back to my old passions, and they would draw me away from the thing that God was calling me to. And I was not going to be looking forward, but I was always going to be looking behind and veering off course. And God, at least in that situation, did the miraculous. There are perils to looking back. We see this in the Bible, perils of Lot's wife. She looked back. Israel in the wilderness continued to look back. And instead of entering the the promised land in just a few days, it took them 40 years. The perils of looking back. I think this is what Jesus is is talking about. Distractions, folks. There are distractions everywhere. And it's easy to waver. And it's difficult to drive the straight path. But we must keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. This is why we need a big Jesus. This is why Luke gives us a big Jesus. We need a big Jesus because there's distractions everywhere. I lust and do not have. And I desire and can't and can't obtain, and I covet, and these things aren't provided for me, and they're all over the place, and I'm looking, and Jesus has to be big, and he has to be more glorious than those things. So there's a lot of distract us, but the disciple keeps his eyes fixed upon Jesus and keeps going in that straight line, and it cannot be a thing of all serve Jesus when... I'll serve Jesus when I retire. I'll serve Jesus once I get a good job. I'll serve Jesus once I get out of college. I'll serve Jesus after I raise my kids. No, now's the acceptable time. So, there are a lot of things to distract us. So I'll conclude with a few points. First of all, Jesus needs to, we we need to have a high view of Christ because there are so many things that are going to compel us and draw us away from who he is. But here's the thing. Jesus has to be first. All of the commitments, even the most important commitments, cannot supplant following Christ. And I do, again, want to caution that we not be legalistic because legalism can supplant following Christ. And I pray that I haven't done either. I pray that I haven't gotten off into you know, that legalistic eye, but, but I also haven't diminished these very challenging words that Jesus has, has spoken. And so here's the thing, folks, and all of these things. If you're a believer, you have the Spirit of God. Isn't that an amazing thing? That you have Jesus Christ through His Spirit living and acting in you. You have the Spirit of God. And so... Um, Seek him how he might be to lead you and how Christ might be supreme. And maybe this week, spend a little bit of time and and seek the Lord. Is anything competing with Christ for supremacy in my life? We'll have a few moments of reflection here in just a bit. And maybe we can think about that. Is there anything in my life that is competing with Christ for supremacy? And if so, we can deal with that. So let's talk about what it means to be a disciple. Then the, the, first of all, a deci- being a disciple, there's, there's some demands on it. It's demanding. I don't know. Lay down your life, take up your cross and follow me. That's quite a demand. And, but he never retracted, nor did he soften it. We should also count the cost. Be straight up front. Count the cost. And also persevere. I, I've said these things and, and, 
and perhaps they're a little bit harsh and maybe even a little bit heavy. My, my goal, though, is not to discourage you, but to tell you the truth. At least as I, as, as well, I think that having studied God's word, I think this is where he's going. I don't want to discourage you from being a disciple, saying, oh, it's too hard. I don't want to be a disciple. No, it's the best thing you could ever do. I'm just saying it's not easy. And if Christ isn't large in your life, it's going to be impossible. So first thing, love Christ. Understand who he is. When he's large, the, the path, the, the road that he's following is, is the most joyous path you will ever be on. It's the most satisfying, fulfilling, and wonderful life you will have. Remember, Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal. Keep him in front and we will not waver. Let us fix our eyes upon Jesus. Let's spend a few moments in silence, re- silent reflection on, on maybe what the Spirit might be speaking to us. I'll just spend a, a little bit of time and let the Lord speak to you and then we will uh, conclude our time with uh, singing. Now, our Lord, we give you praise and thanks that you are greater than anything that this life can ever offer. And we give you praise. Amen.